Today on House of Decline, it's me, Alex, and uh, Steven. And we have a very special subject uh, for our 50th episode. We're going to talk about a theory that uh, we've been we've been throwing about for a while, but I want to make a formal episode about it because I think it's uh, uh, the Space Jam: A New Legacy trailer has really uh, sparked my imagination on this one. And this is a concept called the Kingdom Heartsification of All Media. The video game Kingdom Hearts is ultimately about an evil man trying to harness a dark power by destroying the boundaries that once separated disparate pieces of intellectual property. By using darkness, which in the game is basically a type of chaotic energy, the villain of the series, Xehanort, seeks to bridge worlds, collect the hearts of their inhabitants, and gain access to a supreme source of power so that he can make the world by his design. It is established from the very beginning of the first game that the opening of bridges between worlds destabilizes the universe at large, and the use of darkness in these worlds hollows them out and leaves them as empty husks. Knowing that these crossovers are harmful, we, the gamers, still want these worlds to be connected because that's why we bought this stupid fucking game in the first place. The perverse nerd boner of seeing Cloud from Final Fantasy VII talk sass to James Woods as Hades. We know our desire to see our IP interact is driving the larger universe to ruin, yet we persist in doing so because for some reason, people are innately attracted to pairings of different media properties. In Kingdom Hearts, they view this as friendship. But if we ignore Sora's foolish, non-materialist analysis, we can see it for what it really is. The joy of understanding references. Since Kingdom Hearts' extremely profitable debut in 2004, there has been an exponential escalation of gigantic, orgiastic media crossover properties. Recent examples of this include Wreck-It Ralph 1 and 2, The Lego Movie and all subsequent Lego movies, The Emoji Movie, Fortnite, Ready Player One, the Marvel and DC Cinematic Universes, and the most recent example that sparked this episode, Space Jam A New Legacy, which despite eschewing rape skunk Pepe Le Pew, saw fit to include references to the droogs from A Clockwork Orange, a beloved Warner Brothers media property. I do not believe that the creators of these crossover properties know it, but I think their decisions were profoundly influenced by the success of Kingdom Hearts, showing that not only product synergy could be monetized, but could create this cult-like fan devotion. So uh, this is what this episode is about, the Kingdom Heartsification of all media. And I, I first want to start talking out about uh, earlier crossover intellectual properties Certainly. than Kingdom Hearts. Certainly. Yes. Let's, let us start with 1943's Frankenstein and the Wolfman. That's absolute. I actually had. That's very funny you mentioned that because just off the top of my dome in my notes, I wrote Abbott and Costello meet the werewolf, mm -hmm. which was also a thing. But yeah, no, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Tell, tell me about it. Tell me about it. Well, it's the first example on the wikipedia page for crossover <laughs> so that's why i know it because i just looked it up well there you go but that's very true the universal movie monsters back in the day they had 
all these individual universal movie monsters mm-hmm. and they say hey what if we put lon cheney jr and bella lugosi in a movie and you know product synergy right and you know those movies are uh okay i'm sure did they make profits back in the day i'm sure they made profits back in the day oh but it's like no much. one really like culture wasn't centered around the frankenstein meets the wolfman in a way that you know it eventually became like these crossover events i don't know how they were seen as people back in the day but more it it didn't seem like these dominated the cultural conversation the way they do today well they i don't well they might have we don't have they they absolutely but i mean we don't have a record of what everyday people were talking about but um I would imagine that after those movies came out, the everyday people were probably talking about them quite a bit. People were talking about the Frankenstein and the Wolfman cinematic universe, you think? Yeah, like, do you think the Frankenstein could beat the Wolfman? And then, you know, someone else would be like, no way. <laughs> I guess we all, you know, Freddy, Freddy versus Jason eventually <laughs> came to that. Uh, yeah, those conversations. I don't. I think that Frankenstein. Th- yeah, I think that Frankenstein could beat the Wolfman because you oh. know. I imagine biting through the Wolfman, uh, biting through Frankenstein would be tough, and Frankenstein could use his brute strength in order to punch the Wolfman. But the Wolfman has speed. He has <laughs> such great speed. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, but um, other examples. I mean, television crossovers happened all the time, literally all the time. The most. Uh, so much so that have you heard of the Tommy Westfall theory? No. Okay, so the uh, the hospital drama Saint Elsewhere ended with uh, it turns out that the whole the whole show was imagined by an autistic child in a snow globe. Uh-huh. That, that uh huh. I heard. <laughs> I heard about that on like a VH1. Yeah. Uh, remember this type show. Yeah, it's a remember this thing. So yeah, that was the ending to Saint Elsewhere. And so, um, Wait, but taint, the thing is, a lot of elsewhere? Taint, else, taint Elsewhere, uh, but a lot of Taint Elsewhere <laughs> characters crossed over to different media franchises, and those media franchises crossed over to other media franchises, which means that all of these shows are related, and they all exist in the mind of an autistic child, you know, which is, you know, the, this wow. this theory, but I think just the formation of this theory shows that there's this deep nerd instinct to want to see all your favorite guys from different media properties get together like you're playing with action figures like you have all your little action figures and you're putting them all together mm-hmm. oh um, i do that a and lot so, I, would, I used to do yeah. that all the time exactly it's a very it's a it's a thing i don't know what drives us to do it but it's definitely something that people recognize um and i think uh do you remember like that uh, PSA for the where all the cartoons from Saturday morning beat beat marijuana? I would just as an interjection, it comes from the innate bonapartism that is in all of us, and that is why little 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 children like to arrange soldiers in a row. It's a, it's just evidence. <laughs> it's just more evidence that Napoleon Bonaparte had the right idea. Anyway, what what did you say? Uh, Toussaint Louverture. Yeah. Uh, nope. So, what I was saying, chaos. Uh, but uh, so the other things that uh, you know, previous to previous to Kingdom Hearts, that I can think of that were big crossover things was Who Framed Roger Rabbit, mm-hmm. 
which, you know, featured all of the media properties right at the end, you know, together. All of it, like Looney Tunes and Woody Woodpecker and Hanna-Barbera and Disney all together. I don't know how the fuck they did that. I don't know what the licensing was on that. Like, was it protected because it was satire or something? Mm. But they got the actual voice. That's that's a whole episode unto itself. How the fuck did they license that shit? Well, <laughs> one thing I want to bring up as I'm examining the Wikipedia page is that St. Elsewhere is, is a is actually a, a retroactive crossover. Mm. Um, so what, yeah, what you were talking about is, um, is that it, it made 12 different programs retroactively become crossovers. Yes. Yeah. Just through their connections through St. Elsewhere. Right. That's, um... In the same way that the Simpsons universe technically also exists in the X-Files universe. Well... That that would so I would want to know what like that seems like there's some semantic in there some semantic meaning that may need to be uh, kind of examined. Um, what does yeah, it mean well, to not, be a member yeah. of the same universe? Yeah, but that's the the instinct for nerds is to make them a member of the same universe. I think that's what the Tommy Westfall theory demonstrates that there's this deep instinct. Is it because nerds, nerds to go crazy about this shit? Is it because nerds also feel like they're a child trapped in the brain of an autistic person or something? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't know about that. I I think it's just because you like seeing your guys together and you wonder. It's it's the exact yeah. same instinct of like, could Frankenstein fight the werewolf? Could Superman outrun the Flash? Oh you well, know? I mean, I never would uh, allow universe mixing with my action figures all of my action figures would only play with other action figures from the same uh, universe um yeah. that's a prerequisite the army guys play with the army guys the batman and robins play with the batman and robins they did not mm. interact i would get very angry at anyone who was even would try to make the universes collide like wh who mm -hmm. are you some god <laughs> yeah what is this kingdom hearts <laughs> what is this space jam and okay yeah and the other precursor i mean in, in comics um, there were big crossover events between comics like Crisis on Infinite Earths mm -hmm. and Age of Apocalypse and shit like that. And these were always like huge once-in-a-lifetime events that drastically changed the continuity of uh, all the comics around them. And it, I, I guess the comics industry is really sort of also the, the proto-template for how to create this this massive universe of different intersecting intersecting properties yeah i agree because um, when dc did crisis on infinite earth it was specifically i think to um try to have like a coherent system that would make them more money mm -hmm. rather than it being based in oh wouldn't it be cool yeah it's not because it's cool it's because it's a money-making thing for, yeah for dc and crisis on and infinite that's Earths. i mean yeah Crossover events have always been a money-making thing, uh, uh, and you know from the it's a bit it's about brand synergy. It's always been about brand synergy, right from you know its very beginning from Frankenstein meets the well, Wolfman. Well, no, because well sometimes it is cool because we identified that we do it as children with our toys. We do crossover yeah. events like tea parties. Alice in Wonderland yeah, tea yeah. party time is kind of like a big yeah. crossover event. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because you ascribe different archetypes and you like, 
you, you like find pieces of yourself in different characters from different media and bringing them all together is like you're bringing all the little pieces of yourself you invested in these properties together so yeah i think there is some sort of a sick reason why people like doing that it's, and it's uh, sick it's it's depraved it's depraved right. i i judge you yeah uh, and then the original space jam movie of course uh, which it has the crazy combination of Looney Tunes and just the 90s NBA vibe, yeah. which isn't really like a media property, just like it, it was a vibe. <laughs> they, they just had mm-hmm. 90s basketball players. Yeah, well, um, Phil Jackson and um, that little short troll that ran the Bulls, uh, I forget his name. <laughs> there's like that, the, the manager, there, Phil Jackson was the general manager, and then like there's one guy above him who's like a little troll. Uh, mm. Listeners, if you remember the name of the little troll that helped put together the 90s bulls, you can email houseofdecline at gmail.com. Okay? <laughs> Just remind me what that is. Thank uh, you. I mean, the Space Jam was also huge because um, of its soundtrack, which was huge. Uh, the, uh, I believe I can fly and get up and slam. Come on and jam. Uh, dominated the <laughs> dominated mm-hmm. the airways. It was a true cultural sensation. Yeah, a great end of history moment. Uh, the original Space Jam movie, a great Fukuyama moment. Um, but it was still light entertainment. Like it sold a lot of merch, but there's no there's no serious fan base for the original Space Jam movie. I mean, there is, but they're like. Not as much as what Kingdom Hearts would come to be. Or Ghostbusters, because, maybe. Uh, yeah, but is Ghostbusters was Ghostbusters a crossover franchise though? Mm, well, okay, yeah, yeah. Like, what's a crossover franchise that has as much devotion right, right. as Kingdom okay, Hearts? I, I, I retract. I retract. Yeah, that's my basic argument because what what made Kingdom Hearts different is that it's a deeply spiritual game mm-hmm. <laughs> in oh, a weird course. way it's, of course. you starts out literally the tutorial level is you're in a cathedral of disney characters and mm-hmm. it has this beautiful choral music written by the great video game composer yoko shimamura and that's also like yoko shimamura the reason why people love this game is because she does a lot of the heavy lifting on the soundtrack yeah well i remember um, uh, that when i visited you you played it and i remember how it's uh very spiritual experience uh, for both of us. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's this very, it's this anime shit. And anime culture, with anime culture comes otaku culture, which is that sort of inspired cash cow devotion of just being able to continuously sell figurines to these people. Uh, which is, you know, Kingdom Hearts has shifted 32 million units in video games alone. But more than that is its merch that proves to be... There's no, you know, dedicated Space Jam merch market. Mm. The Kingdom Hearts merch is endless and repeating and endlessly replicable, um, which is why I think it is, you know, more culturally resonant. And Kingdom Hearts was really the first to do two separate huge properties bringing together... Like, like two things that nobody would have ever thought. The only precursor was really Space Jam, which was Looney Tunes and NBA vibe. Who'd have thought? But Final Fantasy and Disney is fucking weird. It's fucking... Why would that have ever happened? 
And you know why it happened? I actually pulled it from the Wikipedia page. The story is very funny. So Hashimoto and uh, Sakaguchi were the two Final Fantasy producers, and they were trying to make a game with the freedom of movement in three dimensions like Super Mario 64, but lamented that the only characters as popular as Disney's could rival a Mario game. Tetsuya Nomura, who's the director of Kingdom Hearts and the writer of it, overhearing their conversation, volunteered to lead the project, and the two producers agreed to let him direct. A chance meeting between Hashimoto and a Disney executive in an elevator, Square and Disney had previously worked in the same building in Japan, allowed Hashimoto to pitch the idea directly to Disney. And that chance meeting led to this crazy inbred media landscape uh, that we have today. Uh, And so uh, basically from its birth, it was about... How can we move the most units? Who's the most recognizable possible character? It's Disney. Mm. Something that strikes me is that, like, this only works when we allow large companies to amass a lot of um, product, like intellectual product. Like, Mm. for example, if does does Pepsi exist in the Coke universe? No, because they're they're competitors. They're not. You they, just pitch. You just pitch Soda Kingdom Hearts, my friend. And so <laughs> no, but this is the crossover events are bleeding into other things like fast food restaurants. Mm-hmm. Now that you have fast food restaurants interacting with other fast food restaurants on Twitter, <laughs> they're doing crossover <laughs> events. And so, yes, you're right. You started seeing combination fast food restaurants. So, oh well, I'm going down to the Popeyes Taco Bell. I'm going over to the to the McDonald's. Um, uh, what's the fish one? The fish. Well, the the combination restaurants are owned by the same company usually. Well, right. Well, exactly. That's why we gotta stop um <laughs> mega corporations from buying all the properties because like yeah exactly we gotta break up big fast food. we gotta break up yum brands and you know force kfc and taco bell to compete independently you know yeah i mean um how would how would walmart because if, if we could figure out how walmart could could mark could use this idea we could probably become millionaires and work for walmart um how could walmart do a crossover event that walmart needs to do a crossover event with the other what they need to do is with, and with you'll amazon see this shit all the okay no there's already a model for this it's funny you say that because uh, a frequent genre of fan art in the internet is anthropomorphizing like a company mm-hmm. and then having them interact. You can see like a billion things where they'll like draw a cute version of this is what Facebook would be like if he were a cute boy. <laughs> and, you know, this is what Snopes would be like because she's a sneaky girl. <laughs> and, you know, they, uh, there's that entire genre of stuff. So, yeah, you could have them interact. Um, in fact, you do have. Um, that in the Emoji movie, you do have this uh, personified brand interaction of tech companies. Yeah, I I predict uh, we'll see some. We'll see more of that. We might see. I don't know if it'll happen with Amazon or Walmart, but I think in ten, fifteen years, you could see like once in a lifetime event. Amazon and Walmart are finally going to produce stuff together, and you'll be able to go to one store called Amazo Mart. Mm-hmm. And then and then at that point. Um, Everyone will be living like indoors a hundred percent of the time. 
no mm-hmm. more going outside because it's a wasteland. Yeah. The trash comes but, up to your doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so before what I am arguing why Kingdom Hearts is different is because you know that it, it's it's not just spirited, but the idea of having heft that this crossover event means something, and it also metatextually means something. It's not just you know. I, th- I think, you know, Frankenstein and the werewolf, people appreciated it as a novelty. It was fun. But nobody was like, oh, my God, I love the Frankenstein and werewolf universe. Actually, they probably were. They probably were writing fan fiction back then. But um, not to the same interconnected degree. And, and, of course, a lot of this is because Kingdom Hearts was on the cusp of the the internet you know the 2005 internet Mm -hmm. so uh it allowed memes about it and references to it and allowed it to spread just this it became part of this early 4chan culture these anime boards that created this sort of cascading further reference culture that further informed the idea that uh you know, uh, what we really want is this language, this idiomatic language of references in our culture, which brings us to our next point. So that was my first point, Stephen, which Mm -hmm. was that Kingdom Hearts represents uh, a shift from previous crossover events by infusing it with more sort of heft, inspiring a greater devoted fan base. And sort of movies that followed after, or like crossover movies that followed after, like the Lego movie, which is beloved, or like Ready Player One, which is filled with the same sort of heft, or like even the fucking Wreck-It Ralph movies, which contain, you know, that same sort of emotional Pixar manipulation type thing. Uh... And especially, like, the Marvel Universe as well. It's filled with that. It, 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 it gives this idea that not only is the brand crossover, you know, synergistic and fun, it also means something very deeply to you. There is this, there is this you know, almost spiritual element to the fact that the brands are crossing over. And you know what it is like? You know what, actually, who had a great commentary on this is South Park's Imagination Land. Yeah, oh, I remember Imagination. Was that the Memberberry time? No, no. No, that was that. Was, Memberberries came way after, way but after. that's also part of it. That'll figure into my next, the next part oh, of my. Oh, okay. Argument. I remember Imagination Land. Yeah, where where everything yeah. from your imagination is, and people start imagining terrible stuff. Yeah, our imagination, or all the all the bad imagined things are coming over. But even that, people like that episode because South Park had bothered to animate all the pop culture references, and it's fun seeing them all together. Right. That's uh, um, that's interesting. I forgot about it, that one. That is a good good ep. But it, yeah, that 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 episode is also metatextually relevant to you know why people love crossover shit so much. Why? Because it's part of you know our share in our shared cultural memory in our shared cultural language. All of these characters do exist together in that weird imagination space. So. In, in in movies, which are corporations reflecting our dreams back to us, uh, it is sort of a cheap thrill to see them all together in that same sort of landscape of cultural language that we have, uh, that, we, that, that uh, forms the part of my next argument. We love references. Part two. We love references so fucking yeah. much. Yeah, of course. It's everything in our culture. It's because that's how we learn how to, how to speak. Yeah. 
It's a series of references that then we learn mm -hmm. how to speak. So we love seeing references. Yeah. As, as a symbolic creature, creatures that love right. languages. Well, well when and, you and encounter then... a reference, you're like, ooh, new, potentially there's some new meaning. And, mm -hmm. and we're always searching for the truth, capital T. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why these, uh, these are like little snacks for our dopamine that uh, mm -hmm. make, make us fat and unwieldy mentally. Yes. <laughs> and especially since the 90s, where uh, reference-heavy media became super vogue. And, uh, you know, you can find it in the works of Quentin Tarantino and Joss Whedon and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and especially the, our beloved Simpsons, which is, you know, a ton. It has this groundbreaking reference humor, which was, you know, I guess informed by Saturday Night Live before it. But really, uh, the Simpsons did homage and the use of movies in order to uh, the use of uh, movie references in order to get across a joke better than anyone else had ever done it. And. So much so that Simpsons references form our cultural language as well. So we're constantly making references to something that the Simpsons had referenced. And our only image of something that had previously existed is not the thing of itself, but the Simpsons reference to it. But we basically know it still. So, yeah. Hmm. I'm just saying that, yeah, the, the, the cascading reference culture is something that has accelerated since the 90s. I, it would uh, strike me as interesting to compare The Simpsons with the oeuvre of Shakespeare because Shakespeare was incredibly referential. Mm. And the, that's like also he kind of created language for a generation and like and references for a generation. He was extremely referential. Um, we just don't get the references today. Because they're yeah. they're too far removed. It's not actually very hard to get the references. You just have to read a little bit of it. It's better actually to watch it, and then you'll then you'll be doing fine. Um, Do you think your appreciation of Shakespeare is better if you get the references? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all yeah. and some and to and but to a certain degree, it's impossible to understand unless you get to understand the references. Um, but see, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You have a richer understanding of the text if you understand where where it operates historically and contextually. Yeah. Uh huh. And so, you know, and like you just said, that re that understanding produces a little dopamine hit. And so the producers of these crossover events understand that just these shallow references produce these dopamine hits. Mm -hmm. And we can keep just cramming them into movies as much as possible, creating this visual noise of references. You know, Ready Player One was so the most crass example of that so far. And it's so funny that it was directed by Steven Spielberg, too. Uh, it's funny on the list of crossovers because they go through the crossovers and every crossover is a character where the movie is the name of that character so it's like <laughs> yeah what they got predator from predator and terminator from terminator and rambo from rambo and robocop from robocop <laughs> what was a robocop crossover movie uh let's see who did robocop crossover with? i think mortal kombat what that's cool i mean yeah in the new mortal kombat video game they which is also a warner brothers property mm -hmm. Uh, they have Rambo and Terminator and uh, and well, there's uh, gonna be Robo a new Cop Mortal Kombat movie, and it's gonna be rated R. 
Yeah, people are looking forward. People oh, like, yeah. uh, in fact, a movie that just came out that people tend to really like is a crossover movie, and it's Godzilla vs. Kong, which is Is that good? Another... Did you see it? I didn't care. I haven't seen it, but people seem to like it because people are saying it's fun, dumb action movie. And generally, those those new kaiju movies done by what's his name Whitwer, they're they're not bad. Like people have said, they're very tolerable series of movies. Don't okay. make you feel bad about the state of movies. Well, I don't um, ever feel bad about the state of movies because there's so many good movies coming out all the time, just not from Hollywood. So it's fine. Like Space Jam: A New Legacy. Like the A24 <laughs> movies or whatever. <laughs> we all like a24 what's good i i don't i haven't seen any fucking movies no. uh, this year i i watched possessor recently possessor was good no i haven't really watched much i haven't watched much tv or movies at all the whole pandemic it's weird i've just been on the computer mm. but but yeah you reference shakespeare i would like to also uh reference uh darmok and jalad at tanagra mm -hmm. the famous uh, the famous episode Darmok from Star Trek The Next Generation where uh, Picard and an alien captain have to do some fun ritual on a planet where it turns out the alien talks in only idioms about their heroes who are similar to Gilgamesh in this case. Yeah. The, so the thing about that episode, so so they have this phrase, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. And they're trying to figure out what it means. Why didn't they zoom in on the word at, circle it, and then and then just point at it? Because that is where you would find, that's the only word in there that doesn't have a idiomatic meaning, right? At. And I guess that, I guess I the thing is, I guess they would then define at using another like idiom, like it's krabappel badapple. It's krabappel badapple. <laughs> Miss Krabappel. It's Miss Krabappel. It's Darmok and Jalad, Miss Krabappel, Tanagra. <laughs> um, well, yeah, yeah, we should try to speak like that more. Like, when we describe our, our relationship, we should be like, it's it's Seymour Skinner and Mrs. Krabappel. We, people do describe, people do talk like that, though. Yeah. That's, uh, I, I, I'm not coming up with any Simpsons references organically right now, but... Uh, uh, just you know, posting memes of a uh, pop culture thing. You know, the the Doctor Evil where it going right. You mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a fun one. I like that. One. That's always good. Uh, Austin Powers. That's that was a movie. See, that was a movie. also a very reference heavy movie. I imagine the crossover potential there. Holy moly. The Austin Powers. You should do the whole Mike Myers cinematic universe, including Michael Myers from Halloween. Well, I, I want to see Austin Powers crossover with the Naked Gun. <laughs> <laughs> Dig up Leslie Nielsen. We need do to get hologram a... Leslie Nielsen. No, no. How much you want to? I bet you this. Naked Gun coming back, twenty twenty five. Steve Carell. OJ and OJ. And OJ. OJ's back, baby. <laughs> <laughs> we should rehabilitate oj he's a pretty good actor yeah he's fine he just got it he only got two of us <laughs> two of us uh, you got no. one of you right i guess yeah you got one I of guess me one of you and one of me <laughs> a white person and a jewish person 
that yeah jews aren't white <laughs> we, we aren't sorry no we are hey you can We're be whatever white. you want man <laughs> um so yeah darmok and jalad at tanagra oron and goofy fighting cerberus in the underworld and the thing is i think people are aware of reference language and the same people are, are aware that irony coats are interactions and people know that it's sort of toxic people know that it's sort of hard to escape and it kind of alienates you mm-hmm. from talking sincerely and with your own words I mean, it is a way of, of communicating, and it's not a bad way of communicating, but I do think there is some sort of regret on being so dependent on these cultural references in order to, you know, break break bread with people. So, I don't know, or there, there is this semblance of cultural regret, at least with um, these big orgiastic properties. Like, why do you think these big orgiastic properties are received so poorly by... The intelligentsia, for example, who see them as uh, this crass commercialized thing, which, you know, that's me, too. I see them as being being exponentially somehow more crass than the original Space Jam, just by virtue of jamming as many properties as possible in there. So this is for things where the the like elites, uh, the elite critics don't like it, but it has a high score for the audience appreciation. Kind I think that was Ready Player One, right? Mm. Like, like like audiences loved it and critics it made bank and critics hated it critics ha- saw it as well, this well yeah critics crass, don't want to let exploitative people, thing critics don't want to let people enjoy things um <laughs> they don't that would cuz if people enjoyed things too much they wouldn't bother to read the read their art, stupid little articles being like this did, <laughs> this did not have it this is it did not it's not interesting and there's no art <laughs> and it's just a bunch of people blowing stuff up um, I went to Columbia. <laughs> so, but Ready Player Ready Player One does suck. Um, Lego Movie doesn't suck, but it's yeah. also this very sort of crass orgiastic brand thing. Yeah, but the it's Lego Movie very well, so we forgive it. Yeah, the Lego Movie is an example of it of a good movie that's also a, like a crossover cash grab. Um, yeah, that's a pretty darn good movie. I liked it. I would wouldn't mind watching it again one day. I'm sure I will. I'm sure I'm gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> have to watch all of the same movies as you soon. Hell yeah! Hell yeah! <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta be a dad, so you can have to watch all the baby yeah, movies. Yeah, watch all the baby movies. Oh, well, we have a lot in common now. <laughs> hey, kid! My gay friend told me about all these. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm gonna call her. Hey, kid! <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, yeah. That's the proper way. That's in Doctor Spock. <laughs> all right so uh meme culture is this especially metastasized form of reference humor and it defines our every waking interaction referencing on, though uh, referencing things like like the the whole categorization of the saints in the catholic church throughout all of history like you could in the middle ages you would refer to a saint and people would just know what you were talking about um, mm-hmm. This this goes this is pointing to something like deep in us, which is why I think critics find it so enervating or aggravating when it becomes corporatized because it's mm-hmm. it's it's how we connect to each other and it's like a central part of culture and to oh, have yeah. it to have it be um, controlled by Disney is um, horrible. 
and they're yeah. horrible, and I hope they go out of business. But they to have our very archetypes controlled by Disney. Yeah. Is so you know what it also reminds me of is the Commedia dell'arte. You know, you'd have uh, Trinculo or Pantoliano or or whatever the characters were called. But the idea is that they were set stock characters that operated as sort of a shorthand, so that you could go from town to town and people would know. Ah, oh, the guy dressed as a clown. He has these certain traits. You know, in the same way that, you know, Captain America has certain traits because of the way that he dresses. You know, the design of certain characters is supposed to uh, be an easy way for you to understand these interacting archetypes. Uh, yeah, because references act as cultural shorthand as well. You don't have to tell the story. The story has already been told, and you reference that story. It becomes a much easier way of conveying depth to people if people are already familiar with that character. Um, I would say, and it part part of what the elites do is is not good. It's not positive, in my opinion, to trash these movies because working class or lower class or any class people, middle class to lower class people, un, they enjoy this stuff, and it's not their fault that that that's all there is. Instead, I really think these critics should put down the pen and pick up the paintbrush. <laughs> if if the art out there is so terrible why don't you contribute a little bit yeah you critics take that mm -hmm. intelligentsia mm -hmm. well i i think there is i think there's a lot of stuff in ready player one that's worth criticizing it's uh it's <laughs> okay but Did, they also I, they act like there's not enough time in the day to do criti criticisms and art i had to pick one <laughs> I, yeah, I think, well, where you see the most saltiness with this argument uh, about audiences versus uh, critics is the MCU. Generally, people want, like, just leave the MCU be. We like our stuff. And it yeah. is art. You don't understand, Marty Scorsese. It is art. Yes, to, not to be too referential, but leave Britney alone. <laughs> but further to my point. The Marvel fan base, the, the need for the Marvel fan base to insist to Marty Scorsese that their big crossover event property really is art and it really is substantial and spiritual goes to the Kingdom Hearts thing, mm -hmm. where it's like literally a cathedral of fucking Disney characters and your little anime boy right at the beginning. Uh, so, yeah, you exalt these media properties as part of your pantheon and you know i think some people see that as sick but you know that's how now a lot of fucking weird nerds operate that we're getting into dork web area here <laughs> that, that we're getting into the intellectual dork web because as you may and may not know nick land refers to the overarching structure of um our system as the cathedral where there are <laughs> crossover events between politicians and corporations but it's all part of one big uh, Kingdom Hearts style setup, I think, you know? Mm -hmm. So Yeah, exactly, yeah. And it's what is Kingdom Hearts but not a negotiation between two corporations. Yeah. That's this it's very landian. I mean <laughs> Yeah. That's a, we're relating it back to all the themes of of House of Decline. Uh, we'll some we'll relate it to the hipster to fash pipeline soon. We'll get there somehow. Hmm. I don't know how. Um, well, the hipsters get so mad. 
about that's it. true <laughs> they're they like turned into fashion. we have to put all of these marvel fans in jail <laughs> i think there's i think of probably a lot of the fash that raided the white house on one six probably like the marvel movies i'm guessing oh boy um that i don't know please don't sue us disney for slandering your fans uh. <laughs> <laughs> no i'm just saying those movies are very popular okay. so I'm, I'm sure the fash like them too I'm sure the Fash see themselves in Captain America or whatever. You can see he's such a blank character, and because it takes such a, like a non-political stance, you can, you anyone can put themselves onto the characters. That's the point of trying to make as much money as possible by being as non-specific as possible. You make the most money. I I think yeah, that's also the hatred of crossover events. It is the death of specificity too, because it's like literally everything is fucking here. Yeah. There's nothing. It's like a gigantic buffet. Yep. Where you know they don't do anything one particular thing well, but because they have so much of it, you know, it seems substantial. You can always put off any character development until the next crossover event, and ultimately, what ends up happening is instead of character development. It's being replaced by a list of different movies that that character has been in. So no development, no arc, no lessons are being learned, no goals are being accomplished. The list is expanding. That's it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there was also something you said before when we were talking pre-show about... Um, actually, Aeschylus incorporated Socrates' characters in a show that, like... There's been references forever, and, mm -hmm. you know, this is just crossover events are part of culture, you know? Like, what about this argument do you find fatuous? Uh, well, a lot, because we have, like, 7% of the, of the Greek plays, so we don't know what the other 93% were like. But uh, it, it goes, this, what do I find fatuous about it is that I don't, think these people have uh, examined the source material because if they did they would probably really like it and they probably wouldn't say it say that they probably <laughs> immediately realized that it's better um but uh i don't know it's just because what they are defending is so shallow um and what they are what they're comparing it to is so deep that's basically my problem with it. Mm -hmm. I don't have a mm -hmm. I don't have much smart stuff to say right now about it. And I didn't I didn't prepare. Sorry. No, it's not. You didn't have to prepare, but it's just I think that's that's there's there is more. I I I don't think it is that obnoxious to say that there's probably more moral heft to Antigone than there is to the fucking you know mcu okay it's well, not it's does, not that like, much of a stress to stretch to say what right? are the moral lessons that you learn from black panther um uh the cia is good yeah you you learn like weird, and charter schools are good like weird authoritarianism <laughs> like like the it's it's basically the the premise of black panther the theme of black panther is like it's good to be the king right i don't know what like it's good to have power you can let's tell people what to do <laughs> yeah um yeah but it's good to be a responsible tyrant and in like you know in the in the um specifically 
it, it, the play series is called the Oristia, but it, in the first, or not the first, I think it's the third part of it in the Humanities, it's like dealing with the consequences of power and killing people in order to uh, advance the goals of society. Like, what kind of consequences are, are there if you sacrifice someone in order to go fight and sack Troy? And it turns mm -hmm. out there's big, big consequences. Um, yeah. Uh, Agamemnon is killed by his wife because Agamemnon killed his daughter. And then Agamemnon's wife is killed by Agamemnon's son in revenge. And so this, this, there's this whole sequence of blood revenge killings. And ultimately, the gods have to get involved to stop it. And so they have a trial. And they put Agamemnon's son on trial. And that they're concerned about him getting a, a fair trial. So they do a change of venue to Athens. <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> um, anyway, they go, and then it's like, uh, you know, going into deep shit. And in the in Black Panther, it's it's not comparable. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I I tend to agree. I I think because that, I mean that's generally a part of the argument you hear. Um, there was a clip that was making the rounds earlier from a cartoon called Close Enough where uh, the characters were saying, actually, superhero movies are modern mythology and just participating in the general... And you hear this argument a lot from, like, the Marvel devotees that want to insist that their shit is super spiritually important. Uh, and as you said before, there's just less going on in them than in the classics, you know? And also, they belong to somebody. The classics don't belong to anybody, really. No one's making money off of right. the... When I we, mean, the translators are making money, I guess. We stopped the big translation racket. The Greek playwrights <laughs> didn't all work for the, for the one big company. Um, <laughs> yeah, there wasn't Disneycopetus. And they weren't doing it to... And, you know... They, when they did write these plays, it, it did not, like, make them bajillions of dollars. Um, they had a reason for doing it, and that, that's an extremely interesting part. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to tell you the reason, but that would be a fascinating thing to examine. I'm sure there's many Ph.D. topics on the motivations of the actual authors. Yeah. If anything, the Marvel movies are not, like... Uh, that mythology the thing that in our modern culture that's closest to that is fan fiction which is taking these archetypes and freely and in a cultural dialogue with other people doing it freely advancing those cultural archetypes together in you know a community which takes on you know weird formats sometimes but as we've seen that fan fiction culture has also informed the producer's understanding of how to exploit people the uh, it, it, because it, that fan fiction culture contributed to their understanding of people really like it when their archetypes from different IP come over and fuck. Yeah, although there's no more sex in movies anymore, according to Ross Douthat of the New York Times. <laughs> there's no more sexy movies. There's no more sex in movies. He's like, remember Julia Roberts, man. <laughs> <laughs> man, what a dame! She she had legs from here to yaya. Uh, there's no more sexy movie. What about um, uh, um, uh, John Wick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. John, John boring. What's her? I call it John boring. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 
we have established... So here's the second part. Just like in that last 20 minutes, we've just gone over why references are important to us, especially now in our accelerated culture, and, you know, why producers are cynically exploiting that. Where it's a natural part of language, but it is being more cynically manipulated than it ever has before for great lucrative gain in this sort of compressed, collapsing, late capitalist world of intellectual property. So what I want to do now is what I think the metatextual element of Kingdom Hearts is very funny, because as I, as I was saying in the beginning, the story of Kingdom Hearts actually references the demise of culture at the hands of this bridging of IP. Uh, and I think it is also... The first Kingdom Hearts game is actually great. It is The reason why I'm obsessed with it is because I think the first Kingdom Hearts game is like a top 10 game for me. It's like a perfect execution of uh, gameplay and like this graphics at the time were just astonishing and they still hold up today. This beautiful style it adopted and it meshes these worlds together improbably well. And it the, the, the story behind it is... Uh, actually succeeds in sort of being this uh, metaphorical arc for like the end of childhood and the succumbing uh, to experience and uh, I think that's why it also resonates with people and so uh, have you ever played the first Kingdom Hearts game Steven? Only the amount I saw you play until you passed out from bong hits and jerk chicken (laughs) hell yeah that's me (laughs) that's me to a T uh, so, mm, 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 mm. you start out as Sora on the Destiny Islands, and you wish to get off your small little world, and uh, your rival is this firebrand named Riku, and you have a love interest with a blank personality named Kairi. Also on the island, you are introduced to three other inhabitants uh, who are all characters uh, from various Final Fantasy properties as children. So already the game introduces you to the fact that, oh yeah, you're going to recognize some shit and it's going to be great. And not only do you get to, these characters are rendered as children and you get to fight them. And it's very satisfying because they're using attacks that you also recognize. So it sort of keeps... It keeps adding reference upon reference to reinforce that little dopamine hit. So your rivalry with Riku escalates, and essentially you're trying to win the heart of Kairi, but really your character's rivalry is the driving force of the series, and you're trying to win the heart of each other. Riku succumbs to darkness. Uh, you, Sora, the protagonist, you know, you are pure and noble, and you are uh, the creator, uh, you are the guy that gets the light. You run into a guy in a hood one day, and he says, oh, the door between worlds has opened. Wait, do the voice, and though. Eventually. It's a great voice actor, isn't it? Isn't it a great voice actor? Um, I believe that the guy in the original game is Billy Zane oh. from Titanic uh, fame. And the, the the door between worlds has opened. You know, it's and it's, yeah, there's some great shit in it. There's some great... Also, epic dialogue, and of course, uh, Sora in the original game is voiced by Haley Joel Osment. <laughs> Kingdom Hearts is light, and Riku's voiced by David Gallagher uh, from Seventh Heaven. Uh, oh, it's a very oh, funny no. voice cast. <laughs> Wait, 
Not the not the dad from Seventh Heaven. No, not the dad. Oh, okay. No, the, the the blonde haired, thick eyebrows. Yeah, we put Haley who... Joel Osment and the dad from Seventh Heaven in the recording booth for twelve hours. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a crossover thing. Uh, oh no! <laughs> no! No! <laughs> um. So what? So the door between worlds has opened. You, Sora, fight your shadow. Um, I should mention before, it doesn't start off on the Destiny Islands. It starts off in the cathedral as the tutorial level, and you're, you you just sort of it teaches you the game. All that really matters is you're in sort of a dream cathedral world. Um, so eventually you get sucked into this place called Traverse Town after the, the door to darkness is opened. Your, your friend Riku has also been sucked in. Uh, he has invited you towards the darkness, and Kyrie, your love interest, has also been sucked in. So the motivation of the game now, very simple plot, find, rescue your friends, get back to your home, right? You know, that's, like, very simple plot. Eventually, the Kingdom Hearts games are famous for becoming horribly convoluted, but the first game actually makes sense. Kingdom Hearts, Degrassi. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Degrassi, actually very much so. Um because you do meet a bunch of hot, troubled teens nice. in Traverse Town oh. uh, a, who are all from various Final Fantasy games. Uh, and you're wandering around this empty town. You discover that these beings called the Heartless have invaded worlds and destroyed them and are taking people's hearts. You know, hearts is basically used as a metaphor for soul or sort of spiritual essence of a person. Hmm. In a video uh, game, no less. Yeah. And the and so you even see in an opening scene that Heartless steals a person's heart and the heart goes off somewhere. We later find out that a lot of these Heartless are being controlled by the main antagonist of the game, Ansem, in order to gather hearts in order to summon this great source of power called Kingdom Hearts, which is kind of like heaven, basically. It's, it's kind of like this mm. afterlife that's also like this source of power that allows you to remake the universe. Uh, so, but that comes much later. So you're traveling around in this town for a while and eventually you bump into, at first you think they're enemies, but it turns out these guys, they're your compadres. They're Donald and Goofy. Do you run into Donald and Goofy and you beat, a, you beat up a big guard armor. And eventually you realize that you have uh, you have similar missions. Donald and Goofy are looking for King Mickey, who has disappeared. You're looking for Riku and Kairi. The bridge between worlds has opened, and you need to explore the bridge between worlds. You, you learn that actually the fact that the bridge between worlds has opened is toxic to the universe at large from Squall and Yuffie and Eris, and that, you know, your goal as... Uh, as the protagonist is to close these worlds off from each other. That's literally your goal in the first game. And it, uh, and it's expressed by the fact that your main weapon is a gigantic fucking key called a keyblade. And so what you literally do in these worlds is seal them by locking the keyholes of these worlds. You get in through these keyholes. So the point of the game is that you need to keep intellectual property separated or everything will be destroyed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, in order to, but the thing, but you know, the paradoxical nature of the game is you want to keep exploring and find all your Disney friends and 
heap all the intellectual property together in the same franchise, you know, which is why Mm. after the first game ends very satisfyingly, they spin it out and try to explain everything in it, and it turns into a total fucking mess. So um, the next part of the game, you depart, you go through a bunch of Disney worlds. They're uninteresting. You're largely just replaying the plots of the movies. Um, uh, But I do want to pay special mention to the fact that James Woods is featured in all these games as Hades. And he... He doesn't phone it in, which is great. It's mm. like James Woods giving 100% in the fucking Kingdom Hearts games, which is just... Gotta love that crank. Gotta love that sexually harassing Well, crank. for him, it's all so the same. Of, it's just an... It's all... It's He's just another day in the studio for him. I mean... Yeah. Well, they got me doing my thing. I'm not Jewish, but I pretend I'm a Jewish guy, and that's that's Hades. You know, that's, that's his character for Hades. Um, yeah. Eventually, you get to a place called Hollow Bastion. Donald and Goofy abandon you because Riku, your rival, it turns out, has been working with the bad guy. And he's got all of this darkness power. He says, no, I'm actually following big corporate Ansem, you know, and he's showing me that the chaotic energy of darkness actually can give you power, you know. And so the Keyblade actually chooses Riku because he has like this this intense will that sort of commands it to his side. Sora eventually, you know, he has a dark night of the soul, uh, but realizes that, you know, friendship is the key eventually, and regains the keyblade for the power of light. Uh he has a big battle with Ansem, the main villain, who is trying to utilize the darkness in order to summon Kingdom Hearts. Uh, and guess what? He wins while also retaining the friendship of Goofy and Donald. It ends with the worlds being sealed. You eventually find Kyrie. You rescue Kyrie and you rescue her heart. You give it back to each other. You seal off the worlds, and uh, in the end of the game, you're still stuck with Donald and Goofy, but you're very much separated from the world at large. And it's really uncertain where you're going. And that's what's nice about the first game is its plot is very open-ended and it doesn't explain anything really about the metaphysical universe. Um, And as a result, it has this very cool dreamlike, childlike dreamlike quality that was totally obliterated in other games that have this annoying, over-explainy anime quality to them. And um, But I think it's interesting that the metatextual element of the first Kingdom Hearts game is that we are creating this property that is only successful because it's we want to create it because it's combining elements. But the message of the game is don't combine the elements. I think that's very funny. It's, it's weird. It's weird that it's Final Fantasy. I feel like, why, why not Dragon Quest? Um, you know? Like, Dragon I, Quest is... there's They're up to nine on Dragon Quest. It's pretty popular. <laughs> I think because, well, also, also Final Fantasy VII um, had, was the biggest JRPG ever at that time. Yeah. And definitely had the most recognizable characters in the West, for sure. And they were trying to hit as broad a market as possible, which included not just Japan, where Dragon Quest was uh, primarily popular, but the West as well. Also, Square at that time was still just Squaresoft. It hadn't merged with Enix, who controlled the Dragon Quest series. Mm. After it merged with Enix, then it would have been able to do that. But yeah, still in 2004, Square was just Square. 
Oh, so they were um, okay. I didn't even know Dragon Quest is now in the same or company. 2002, I think Kingdom Hearts is even earlier. Yeah, so the company that made Kingdom Hearts bought the company that made Dragon Qu- Dragon Quest. They didn't. They merged. Oh, they they merged. didn't. They didn't buy. Yeah. They yeah. Well, Dragon Quest was made by Enix. Well, when there's a merge, generally there's a top and a bottom. <laughs> uh, I th- well if that were the case it's likely square topped enix because yeah. enix was sort of at the end of their rope um, yeah that's while final fantasy was like soaring in that era they call it a merge but one of the corporations wins yeah one of the t- one uh, w- some of the teams get fired for redundancy it's oh, not yeah. it wasn't the square teams that were fired for redundancy let's let's put it that way <laughs> uh steven's holding his uh psycho kitty ramona, yeah, ramona who only loves by him. the mic so she wants to fuck the show up there she goes mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah and what's funny about the kingdom hearts games is that the first game wraps up so well people love it it's still generally regarded as a classic even amongst people that hate the series as a whole they begrudgingly admit that the first game is a little bit of a like a, a little bit of a masterpiece. Hey, at least um, then, at least they didn't have to invent a soap for their own fans, like uh, like <laughs> like that uh, that war that fighting game on the Nintendo. Did you see that? Oh, Super Smash Bros. They yeah. had to enforce soap rules. Well, Super because, Smash uh, Brothers not only enforced soap rules, they had to make they made their own Super Smash soap to try to get the Super Smash players to use soap uh, and shower. Um, yeah, the Super Smash community has a real problem with um, odor, uh, hygiene, and pedophilia. Well, and I don't grooming. know about that part. But I remember when when we were, uh, you know, you and I, we were on the way to the to the store to buy the Kingdom Hearts, because um, uh, we had to go buy Kingdom Hearts. You uh, talked to the lady about <laughs> the lady at the counter about how bad about how bad the play the Super Smash players smelled, and she was like, "Oh yeah, it's a real big problem. That's a big problem." Yeah, yeah, it's an absolute <laughs> thing. It's an absolute. Thing. But you get that with any sort of like community that attracts. A certain type of nerd like it's a thing in the magic the gathering community as well huh. which you know well not to insult magic players but there are a lot of smelly magic boys out there there's a lot of smelly magic buddies yeah. out there the, fan, you know? the fans of the video games i like all smell wonderful <laughs> valheim fans yes yes um well go well uh where were we? I keep dis- dis- disrupting. Uh, I was just... <laughs> just no, I, I'm at the end of my points right now, but I was relating the plot of Kingdom Hearts 1, yeah. uh, and I just want to do a quick note on the future Kingdom Hearts games. They they suck huh. hard like in uh, compared to Kingdom Hearts 1 because they, they really dropped the ball in terms of writing, which was actually turned out to be a pretty important part of the first game, and something that people really liked about it was the fact that its story and the way that it was conveyed was actually pretty good and satisfying. Uh, and the second and third games dropped the ball by sort of, you know, defeating the narrative of the first game, which was, ah, oh, we got to keep opening up the worlds again, even though it's destroying the universe at large, you know, because yeah. Ansem keeps coming back in different forms and we got to, you know, keep them, keep them open again. Oh, darn. <laughs> they keep dragging us back. Yeah. Uh, 
so it erases the power of the original narrative and sort of the tragedy that the point of the first game is that you have to be separated from your friends after you rescue them. Which is, uh, you know, nice and melancholic. You know, we good. we have a good opportunity for some crossover with the new Matrix stuff coming out. Hopefully, mm. hope, I'm hoping they put the Joker in the in the new Matrix. <laughs> hope the new Matrix is Jokerified. I mean, they could easily fucking do that because, like, the Matrix, what? It takes place in a computer world, yeah. so it's like, oh, the Matrix has programmed some new agents for us. What are they going to be? Surprise! They're all Jokers. Well. My, it would be, you know, we should contact the Wachowski sisters about uh, the plot for the Matrixes because we could probably just take the Kingdom Hearts plot and re- <laughs> repackage it and have a pretty darn good Matrix movie. Well, okay, which brings us into the fourth and, you know, final part of this episode where we speculate on the future of IP consolidation. Yeah. Uh, because I think this is going to become. This isn't ending. Uh, this Space Jam, Ready Player One shit, it's going to persist. And it's going to... And, like, it, it, the other thing that I mentioned before, which I shouldn't gloss over, is Fortnite. Fortnite has all these skins from different properties that come together uh, into this game where the point is you, you have this conspicuous consumption of these properties. So, um, and Fortnite is the... I think it's still the biggest video game in the world, right? Um, what you mean has the most players at the same time? The most active player base, yeah. I think so. Uh, I think so. It's probably like League of Legends or CSGO or something. I'm not thinking of. Well, no, Minecraft is probably close, and then Fortnite. Minecraft's pretty big still. Yeah. Minecraft is, I would love to do, I wish we could get someone who knows a lot about Minecraft, because Minecraft is amazing. Yeah, it's an interesting world. I would like to also talk about the contrast between the beauty and wonder of, and, and sort of the wholesomeness of the Minecraft world with its horrible creator, Marcus Notch Person. Yeah. I mean, he also he can't claim, he can't claim a lot of um, credit for what Minecraft eventually became because his beta was pretty preliminary, and like the other developers at Mojang have like a lot to do with why that game was so well received but it's just funny that well he hates his life this... now so it's fine yeah it's so fucking yeah marcus person might be the the person that irritates me the most because you created something beautiful that everybody loves and connects people and you just let it make you become bitter and awful and that's so such mm. a weight don't I would be so ecstatic if I fucking created Minecraft. I would be, and had billions of dollars, I would be, like, building homeless shelters and giving out hoagies, and, you know, I would be, like, so happy. You would be and giving this guy out hoagies? Just only, yeah. <laughs> just throwing them. Well, the, I don't know that much about that guy other than he was like, man, it sucks having $4 billion. Nothing, yeah, he's nothing real. sucks quite as much. Um, but in Minecraft, you can build a virtual computer. Like a yeah. full virtual computer, and it is mm-hmm. like extremely cool. Um, so you can build an eight-bit computer, functional. You can build a a graphing calculator out yeah. of something called redstone, which is basically in-game logic switches. Mm. Uh, Minecraft is extremely cool. Um, yes. They should teach it in schools. 
But I also think Minecraft is... Do, has Minecraft ever IP combined? They do teach Minecraft in school, actually. I, I saw this fucking crazy... It wasn't that crazy. It, it seemed natural. But I didn't know what to make of it. It was this Minecraft introduction to, like, Lakota tribes. And it was like, learn about the Lakota in Minecraft. <laughs> um, and there were these blocky Lakota people <laughs> prowling around with, with blocky teepees. I'm trying to see. They might have done an IP combined. There's something called Minecraft Dungeons that I think is a DLC. Yeah, but did they put, like, Wolverine in it or some shit like that? I mean, Minecraft Steve is in Super Smash Bros., but to my knowledge, Minecraft has not done, like, what Fortnite has done, where they actually get a bunch of, like, licensed brands and put it smack dab in the middle of the game. I think Minecraft weirdly does... They weirdly do have, like, an image of wholesomeness to keep up, which means they can't really resort to in-game advertising like other more crass games like Fortnite can. I say crass a lot. I've used the word crass a lot this episode, but it's uh, it's an apt adjective. I stand by it. I'm looking up the most recent Minecraft DLC was Minecraft Dungeons, and I don't think it has any crossover. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it's, you know, now that they're owned by Microsoft, it's only a matter of time before you see the Master Chief in Minecraft. Mm-hmm. Seriously, it's only a matter of time. Yeah, that is true. Uh, it will be cross-brand synergy. Wonderful cross-brand synergy. But what, yeah, cross-brand synergy not just as uh, this sort of easily easily noticed vacant marketing ploy as it was in the past, like with the original Space Jam, but crossover properties given the heft and cathedral Nick Land worship mm-hmm. of Kingdom Hearts. Um, so, you know, do you think we're going to get, like, adaptations of Macbeth with, like, the Iron Giant as Macbeth? No, there is a new, uh, you see the Coen Brothers announcement? Yeah, well, it's just the one Coen. It's just Joel Coen for some reason. Really? Yeah. Why is Ethan? Yeah, I don't know why. Why not? Where? Maybe they're having a fight. (laughs) They're having, like, a Macbeth-style fight. Yeah. (laughs) Uh-oh. Having a brother, a brother battle. That's no good, battle. man. That is, there's something going. Ah, oh no. Trouble in paradise. Yeah, but yeah, they have an, they have a Denzel Washington playing Macbeth, and they have a cast of largely uh, black actors, uh, which is interesting for the Co- for the Cohen because they're not known for casting many black people in their movies. Yeah. So better late than never, and it's Macbeth. My favorite Shakespeare. Wow. Great great story. That's the that's one I haven't ever been able to tackle. Really? Yeah. It's my it's the best one. Mm. It's got it's got ghosts and witches and prophecies and murder and and uh, schizophrenia. I'm gonna say it's like... not the best one because I haven't read it. <laughs> there you go. What's your favorite well, Shakespeare? I, I, probably Hamlet. Okay, there you go. I like that Classic. one. I like that one a lot. Uh, it's uh, the ultimate uncle play. I also, of course, like Henry V. Yeah. That one's fun. You beat yeah. the French. He beat him. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good <laughs> moment. That's a, such a good moment when you finally beat the French. After a hundred years of war, you beat them. Because they're like too... Like when Sora beat Ansem. Yeah, they're too stupid to know that, that, that it's all muddy. 
The French didn't understand that Kingdom Hearts was light. <laughs> and the, or that the rain made the ground muddy. <laughs> uh, that would be funny if, like, um, the executives at Disney... Uh, adopt Henry V, and we've noticed we get we get more eyeball retention if we just we just put a bunch of R.I.P. in the background, and in the background you see a bunch of clockwork yeah. orange guys and the Henry V just thrusting <laughs> the Iron Giant. Who for some reason the Iron Giant is weird because it's this little known property that for some reason achieved prominence in the trailers of both Ready Player One hmm. and this new Space Jam Legacy movie. Oh, and the, the other thing that I want to talk about the Space Jam Legacy trailer is it has little worlds exactly like Kingdom Hearts in it, showing the little different pieces of IP. Mm. It's like almost it's almost ripping off the, the whole Kingdom Hearts conception of like the shared universe IP completely, yeah. which is very funny. And it's almost it's a straight up acknowledging and it. And it's a Tron ripoff, too. Yes. So what's the like? Tron features in the second Kingdom Hearts game. What? Tron is in Kingdom Hearts. Oh, God. <laughs> you can't put, I fight for the user. You can't put you can't put you can't put a program like you can't put a, a program like that into a video game. <laughs> yeah, I love uh, I love Box Tron. Tron's one of my favorite um, IPs. It's good IPs. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's also something that's been cynically talking about art as IP or properties. But that's the way it's viewed, you know, when you're when you're doing these big orgiastic crossover events, that's what you have. These things aren't the these things lose the sort of spiritual undertone of art and become just commodities to be traded. They become blocky objects. They don't become sort of ethereal, wispy stories that we can relate our lives to and maybe feel some sense of profundity in this confusing universe. No, they become widgets. Hmm. I'm just And you know, nothing wrong with that though. I'm thinking of like the David Lynch thing where David Lynch doesn't want to address um John Ham and uh, the lady that pays, plays Peggy as um as anything but their characters from Mad Men. <laughs> insisting on the crossover. It's happening yeah. now to me, to us. Reality has crossed over with my favorite TV show. <laughs> it has a really great mise-en-scene. Now, now, Don, Don, you shouldn't treat women that way, even though I can sympathize. I certainly had my times. Remember when Don Draper goes to meditate and the, everyone at home is like, oh, he's going to think of Coke. He's going to think of Coke. And then <laughs> we, we, and we were, they got an entire nation cheering on the creation of Coke. <laughs> oh, he did it. Yeah. He invented Coca-Cola. I like to teach. But that's a perfect example. Infusing uh, spiritualism and new age mentality with pop culture, with a pop culture reference. It's the dopamine hits because you recognize the Coke logo, but it's also tied to your understanding of a shared cultural language. I'd like to buy the world. It's it's uh, all part of it, you know. The the marriage of spiritual heft. Who is the to I? Pop culture reference. And I'd like to buy the world of Coke. Who is the I? Uh, presumably the the multiracial actors they hired for uh, that commercial. Oh, it's just those those people? <laughs> those particular actors, yeah. I, it's not like 
this our collective consciousness? Uh, I I don't think it's the cosmic eye. The co- no. I think it is. <laughs> Maybe it is. It's the cosmic eye. I the uh, the eye on the top of the pyramid would like to buy us all the coke. <laughs> <laughs> because it's addictive. It's actually it's very skill teaching the world to sing in perfect harmony. The idea of seven billion people all singing at the same time that would be like a good science fiction plot. Like everyone just started singing uh, uh, a total eclipse of the heart. Well, not perfect to, word for word. Not to uh, be a downer, but that that could never happen. Oh. <laughs> if, if, if all seven billion of us stopped what we were doing to sing a song, it would have it would, it would be a catastrophe. Bridges yeah, would nine eleven. Bridges would over. fail. Hell, like every airplane would fall out of the sky. Um, so many like surgeons would just like rip open their patients and out of uh, absent-mindedness because they're singing "I'd Like to Buy the World a Coke." It's really a terrible and frightening idea of of having every all seven billion of us stop and sing. And I hope it never comes to pass. Yeah, maybe that's how we all die. Maybe that is the melancholia scenario, the uh, the singing madness. I thought melancholy was like about the what, what was the world ending from? Big big meteor, oh, it was big a planets big meteor? crashing into the world. Yeah, okay, that's planets, what I thought. Another planet's crashing into Earth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that movie Melancholy is Lars von Trier is he listened to the Ariam song "It's the End of the World as We Know It" and I feel fine and was like, I can do better. <laughs> I do not feel fine. I feel <laughs> melancholy. <laughs> that guy's a creep. Uh, well, I want to watch his Nazi movie about the the people in Austria or whatever. Mm. I want to see the Lars von Trier combined cinematic universe. Yeah, it's Dogville and Breaking the Waves and Dancer in the Dark, and they're all together and they're fighting Har- like Super Smash Bros. Harmony Corinne should do uh, a crossover movie, uh, like Gummo plus Spring Breakers yeah. plus Beach Bum. Yeah. I would love that. Yeah, see, exactly. I'm pitching these to myself, and all, all my they favorite sound very freaks. amusing to me. These are the fu- this is the future of IP consolidation, uh, the collapsing nature. But also to tie it to a greater thing is like um, before on this podcast, I, I think I've referred to QAnon as the Kingdom Hearts of conspiracy theories. Ooh. Because what it is is the consolidation of every other conspiracy theory. It has JFK. It has, you know, uh, d- d- elements of deep state shit. It has all the Alex Jones shit. It has, I'm sure the moon landing's a part of it. Uh, and it combines all of them because it has this unified deep state theory from which all other conspiracy theories emanate. I'm sure 9-11 conspiracies are a part of QAnon as well because um, it has created this space and this spiritual import to these conspiracy theories as well. Uh, not unlike how, Q, uh, not how Kingdom Hearts treats the spiritual import of combining different intellectual properties. Yeah, people like to combine the different worlds of you know the uh, the Unabomber of Ruby Ridge and nine eleven so into one unified uh, Kingdom Hearts of conspiracies. I think that these people who are like, oh, it's mythology, would have a better comparison in the forced Christianization of uh, pagan countries because that. <laughs> 
is the tr- go on, the go true on. crossover events were happening when uh, every holiday, Easter, is a crossover <laughs> event. Okay, it's combining a pagan holiday with a Christian holiday. Christmas yeah. crossover event. Um, there you go. And in order to get the pagans to accept Christianity, they had to be like, well. You, you guys can show up, sort of. Your guys kind of show up in in uh, in our world, in our universe. It's the Jesus cinematic universe, and Thor is like he's like kind of under, under that. <laughs> <laughs> he's like a hierarchy. He just kind of comes in underneath that. Yeah, you know, he's he's just skates in sometimes. You know, hello, I'm Thor, and now I'm going in the background again. Well, why? My question: Why doesn't the MCU have Jesus in it? He's kind of the ultimate superhero. Yeah. Turns out Jesus was a mutant. Aw, yeah. (laughs) He's an (laughs) X-Men. Yeah, Jesus is an X-Men. I mean, this is is just a South Park. That's the the super friends, Uh, right? Yeah, yeah. In which they depicted Mohammed, but didn't get in trouble for some reason. Oh, no, they did. They got in trouble for that. I mean, no, they never got in trouble. Well, Comedy Central pulled that episode. You can't get that episode. Yeah, eventually they got in trouble when, but at the time it aired, and for years after, in between that and like um, the the Dutch magazine and oh, Charlie Hebdo, yeah, well, that's because nobody at, cared at that time. Uh, America was in Iraq and anti-Muslim, extremely. Uh, that's why they didn't get in trouble because. Um, the liberal media was yeah, anti-Muslim. I guess you're right, yeah, that they were pro-Iraq yeah, right. war and anti-Muslim. So the like you wouldn't get the New York Times trying to cancel South Park for, um, like they do try to cancel Charlie Hebdo. Yeah, like the New York Times is like but, look yeah. at this garbage, but they said nothing when South Park did it. Uh, look, I'm not saying the Charlie Hebdo guys deserved it, but. Um, uh... No, they don't. They didn't deserve it. We, we believe in the free, freedom of expression. I, you can make I'm fun kidding, of, of course. You should be I, allowed they, to make... Of course, the Charlie Hebdo guys. But, um, but, I mean, you know, that's... But I think Charlie Hebdo is complicated by the fact that um, France is actually a very anti-Islamic country and does systemically discriminate against Muslims. Uh, so, you know, it's 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 rough. But of course, nobody is seriously saying the Charlie Hebdo's guys deserve to lose their lives over printing inflammatory racist cartoons. Yeah, no, but um, they shouldn't. You shouldn't. If you're not trying to offend, if you don't want to try to offend people to the point of someone killing you, you shouldn't do that. Because uh, in a in a way, that's like what every satirist wants, right? To like be so to be so edgy that somebody kills them over a joke. Yeah, I guess that's I how guess, you know. I that. guess they were right. Wow, good yeah. one, guys. Yeah, you did it. <laughs> like I don't think I I am because there was also that rush after they were assassinated to say Charlie Hebdo are heroes. Yeah, je suis no. Charlie. <laughs> je suis yeah, je Charlie, Charlie. Right. Yeah. It's like it's like if they assassinated the editors of the Babylon Bee, and we just said, "I am the Babylon uh-huh. Bee." I am the Babylon Bee. <laughs> yeah, some astroturfed conservative humor newspaper. Uh, <laughs> this is the first recorded court case of uh, trying someone for murder. This individual hacked into the Babylon Bee and wrote a fake article. And in the fake article, it had a cartoon image of the Prophet Muhammad. And then the entire 
uh, all the employees of the Babylon Bee were murdered, and the hacker is being charged. <laughs> uh, well, it's really, it happened on a company computer, so, um, you know, the rule that corporations take responsibility for their employees, no, that doesn't well, work. Well, it's that actually Babylon Bee's fault for not running a secure server, so. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, they, they're the ones that should get sued. They should get gawkered. Hmm. I blame the Babylon Bee for everything. They're pretty pretty lame. I mean, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, they're not a, they're they're not a good out of the many many humor rags on the internet. They're very uh D tier. Very F tier. I like the hard times. The hard times is funny. With Jer- Jeremy Kaplowitz? I don't know. Yeah, who I think is. that guy is one of the guys involved. Yeah, they're good. Yeah. They're good. Uh but yeah, the future of IP consolidation is basically things are only going to get crazier from here on end and this sort of the idea of these disparate worlds coming together and collapsing uh, uh, is informing culture at large and not just in media, but our idea of how everything connects to each other um, through this sort of Jimmy Garrison-like connection of patterns together uh the the creation of these interrelated ip worlds and sort of the pepe silva conspiracy theory connection mindset are intimately connected and i think that is what we will see in the future of this ip consolidation the further marriage of all of these worlds together um in this conspiratorial paranoid uh cyberpunky framework hmm i mean yeah you could do something pretty cool with it if you wanted to um like there's a QAnon style conspiracy among all the different ips and like your character if you're the main character or the, the the protagonist is like constantly being foiled by new characters who are seemingly involved in a dark plot yeah, yeah, it's Ready Player One, but it's a thriller, and the Iron Giant keeps <laughs> killing me. <laughs> uh, it is the Iron Giant's kind of a nice movie. It it came out right when I think it came out right around DVDs coming out. I think. Yeah, I think that's why it was big. Came in '98. Yeah, DVDs were coming out right then, so mm-hmm. people were like, "Whoa, you can put a movie on a CD." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had laser discs at that point as well. Okay, Canada, Canada man, we didn't have that here. <laughs> uh, the Kingdom Heartsification of all media. This is my theory. What it was. So that let's just review what we've gone through so far. So, Kingdom Hearts represents a specific watershed moment in the marriage of this sort of spiritual ideology to these IP crossover events. This sort of emotional heft that had previously not been found in examples of the genre. Um, And the reason why this was is because, two, our culture becomes more referential and more metastasized in its reference. This sort of cancerous overgrowth of reference just uh overcoming each other and people uh, money makers recognize that producers recognize that and seek to reproduce that in our media which is how we get these uh 
massive IP crossover events. A three, the plot of the Kingdom Hearts game, the initial Kingdom Hearts game, metatextually warns us of the encroaching destruction of our media landscape as a result of this crossover. And the future of IP consolidation for uh, this this sort of Kingdom Heartsification of media also spills out into the real world, into the Kingdom Heartsification of conspiracy and reality at large where we combine our different conspiracy worlds together into one shared plane of cultural consciousness but sort of dilute the truth or any special meaning that they originally had so that is my theory the kingdom heartsification of all media what do you think steven i think everybody needs to go to houseofdecline.com and check out the comics there you can click on a button that says comics it's www.houseofdecline.com that's h-a-u-s houseofdecline.com and then you will click on the button for comics check out some wonderful comics and tune in next week every week for more of your favorite your favorite boys at house of decline and we promise no crossovers no guests from here on out (laughs) no more no more guests no more brand synergy nothing it's gonna be we are a closed universe now no one in no one out (laughs) ideologically against guests (laughs) well yeah podcasts are kind of uh when like the podcast chapos going on each other's uh podcast oh absolutely that's a great example that i didn't even think of the leftosphere universe Mm -hmm. where you have these and you know i'm guilty of it too of having like these images of my parasocial buddies and i like it when they go on other people's podcasts it's like what is this a crossover event i love it these worlds are colliding you know and that is sort of the appeal of the of the leftosphere podcast world yeah we're your friends inside your phone (laughs) are your friends inside your phone and sometimes we interact and you're sora and you interact with all of us yeah you're what's keeping us all together thank you so much listener we love you